0: Anybody who's heard this episode knows that my heroes are guys and gals that are willing to run towards the sound of guns. I love the military, not just in the United States, but around the world because of who they are and what they do for their country. But I also have the greatest respect for law enforcement because every day they put the uniform on and they're there when someone calls for help. And some of those days, there are very violent, very dangerous situations. My guest on this episode of Unbeatable is Alex Chandler, who received the Medal of Valor, the highest award that you can give a law enforcement officer for Valor responding to a dangerous situation. And Alex is gonna describe in great detail what he and other incredible law enforcement officers did when they were called out to a gunfight and an officer that had already been wounded. So sit back and listen to this incredible story from my guest, Alex Chandler, on this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Alex, thank you so much for agreeing to be th- my guest on this episode of Unbeatable.
1: Yes, sir. Thank you for having me.
0: Man, it's great to talk to you. I heard a little bit about you through a mutual friend. Yeah. Yeah. So I should give a shout out right now to John, <laughs> who can help get us connected. How do you know this guy?
1: Um, to my Gossert, right?
0: Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah.
1: So... I met him before I was a cop, uh somebody I was dating at the time, they were mutual friends. I actually met him years before I was a cop and then uh we actually ended up working at the same department or I actually joined the force that he was on and uh until he All moved right. on to the DA's office as an investigator so
0: so you guys had uh, uh you got a chance to work with each other a little bit. Yeah. Did he have any influence on you uh pursuing law enforcement?
1: Um I would just, yeah, I mean, making those contacts with people who are already in the job and being able to pick their Uh brain, you know, and and get a a better understanding of what it's like to do the job. Definitely um, just a combination of meeting all of those types of people.
0: Well, big shout out to John for getting us connected, because this is the first time that I've got a chance to get to know you. And we're just going to learn more about your story during this episode. Sound cool? Yep. Yeah. So um, talk to us a little bit about what you wanted to be when you were growing up. Did you always think about law enforcement or was there something else? How did this thing work out for you?
1: Yeah, not at all, man. Like uh, I never probably probably never thought I would ever be in law enforcement. Just, just wasn't on my radar at all. Um, Joining the military at a very young age or. Joining in the military is what I decided I wanted to do at a very young age. Um, so, I mean, when I was growing up, I was playing GI Joe in the yard, you know, with sticks like they were rifles and running around the woods and stuff. So that's that's where you know I joined. I ended up joining when I was 17, and I made I made that my mind up years and years ahead of that, you know. So I had been. That was my that was my path that I thought uh-huh. my life was yeah. that's I thought you know I would never do anything else ever other than be in the military. That's what I thought.
0: Well, for the people that are listening right now that don't live in the United States, 17 is absolutely as early as you can join. In fact, you need your parents to give you permission to join. If you're still 17, I was just turned 18 when I signed up and still in school myself, man. But I didn't need any uh, my parents to sign for me because I had just passed my 18th birthday. So you really did love the military (laughs) if you were signing up while you were still 17.
1: Yeah, it was my senior year. I was like halfway. Well, not even halfway through senior year. I joined in November of 2010. I was 17. I did like the delayed in- entry thing. It was like, yeah, I went straight to basic right out of high school. I think I graduated All right. in, in May. I was in Fort Benning, Georgia in June, you know, first part of June. Yeah. So that was right after school. Uh, but yeah, my mom was in the recruiter's office with me and she, yeah, I bet paper. she was.
0: And I bet she had some hard questions for you oh, and man. the recruiter. If, yeah. Before she signed her name to that paperwork.
1: Right. She's like, are you sure? You sure this is what you want to do? I was like, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. You don't want yeah. to reconsider, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell tell everybody a little bit about the place that you grew up. Um, I can, I don't, I'm not even going to try to pronounce this name. Louisiana names are hard for me to pronounce anyway. So you're yeah. going to tell everybody a little bit about where you grew up.
1: Yeah, so I kind of bounced around a lot. Actually, uh, I was born in Plaquemine, Louisiana. It's a small city outside of Baton Rouge. There you go. My mom and my mom is uh, from the Baton Rouge area. My grandfather lived in Walker, Louisiana, um, but my dad is actually from Conway, South Carolina, which is a very small town outside of Myrtle Beach. It's like right, right outside of Myrtle Beach, uh-huh. and um, my mother's my father, my grandfather, he moved to Georgia in the Atlanta area when my mom was pretty young. So I've had family all over the Southeast, uh, United States. And so I was born in Plaquemine, Louisiana, and then, uh, spent a couple years there, early childhood stuff. And then my mom and dad moved to Conway where my dad was from. So we spent a lot of time uh-huh. right outside the Myrtle Beach area and grew up on about 100 acres out there. And we moved to McDonough, Georgia. Went out like, I don't know, second, third grade, I think, you know. And uh, yeah. then we moved back to Conway and then moved back to Georgia. So it's just been
0: back. So and you forth. bounced around a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. went from small town to McDonough is a small town, but it's right outside of the massive Metro, metro. Atlanta area, yeah, which, which must sure have been is. a bit of a shock to you when you moved to McDonough.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, like I said, we grew up where when I, when I grew up on about a hundred acres. That was an old old farm uh, that was my dad's stepfather's family's land that they you know farmed uh-huh. on for generations and so that was like the best childhood experience i think personally i could have had like we had i think about two, three ponds on that property there was a river that ran uh, yeah. through the property and it's you know, a, it's a, a
0: young boy's dream right there man
1: yeah yeah and it was you know wide open um lands and it was just it was crazy because my step-grandfather, he had some some uh, some work done with some heavy equipment, and they started digging up the soil, and they found s- something called cocaine. Tell me they found which, oil. I wish. Um, but they <laughs> I found was going to say, called, tell me
0: you guys became oil barons.
1: <laughs> oh, no. Uh, they found something called cocaine, is how it was pronounced when I was a kid. I, hopefully, I'm saying that right.
0: All right. And I have no uh, idea what like, that is.
1: So it was like fossilized ocean matter, right? And uh-huh. so it's just a very interesting thing that they, they dug up and then they put it on all the driveways on in, in the farmland. So really? not only did we have all these ponds and rivers and all this open area, I could literally walk down this half-mile driveway that was covered in fossils from the ocean and find... Wow. Seashells. Yeah. Seashells, sharp yeah. teeth, all kinds of stuff. Little black oh, that pebbles cool. and stuff. And and uh, my grandfather yeah. used to tell me that they, it was fossilized whale poop. So I was like holding whale poop as a kid. <laughs> That's what he used to tell me. I mean, it was just, that was, living in that area was just a great experience as a kid.
0: Okay. So it almost sounds too good to be true. Just having right. that kind of land and that kind of yeah. upbringing. But... I know a little bit about your story, and I also know that your dad struggled a little bit while you were growing up. So can you describe a little bit of his struggles, but also how this affected your parents' marriage?
1: Yeah, so um, there was some substance abuse stuff, you know, with alcohol and some some drug use. And uh, it was a a very hard time in my childhood where uh, there was a lot of abuse going on you know physical abuse the uh-huh. mental abuse um my dad he seemed to be just very angry a lot or you know frequently and that's unfortunately yeah. um in my young childhood days that's like that's what I remember is that man being like angry a lot and uh yeah. seeing the you know my mother and father literally having like fist fights and stuff and and uh all the yelling wow. and screaming and stuff so yeah that uh definitely took a toll on me um when my parents split up and we me and my mom and my sister moved to georgia um you know there wasn't a there wasn't a a lot of relationship to be had with him um for many many yeah. many years and uh that was that was hard like not Having him, I think, in pivotal time frames as a young man growing up into, like, the, going from, like, a, a kid to those preteen into teenage years and not having him around. Um And then, obviously, when they separated, the memories were unpleasant. So not only was he not there, but what I do remember of my childhood outside of the environment that I grew up in and, like, the physical environment, the, the land I was describing, it was beautiful yeah, but right. the in-home stuff was was bad and traumatic so like i said not only was he not there but what i do remember of my childhood with him a, a lot of stuff was bad not not everything like uh, my dad i do want to say that sure. my dad is n- not the same person today thank god um he is All a right. good man awesome now, you know yeah. thank the lord like he's he's sober like he's a great person but at that time it was not it was not a good conducive environment for a kid to be in a young man and then not having him um to teach me things that i thought a young man should know at an early age or you know just having that father figure to build the that confidence level for you as a young man going into your young adult years like that just was pretty much non-existent
0: yeah and if you live with your mom and sister then you don't have a lot of male examples and right. i met personally many many guys very much like you m- myself right. included alex that struggled to try to figure out what does it mean to be a man when you're you know mom loves you your sister wants to do wants the best for you but it's really yeah. hard to figure this out without another guy in your life that's showing you what it means to be a man i have met thousands literally right. of guys like that in the military that are struggling to figure out what it looks like to be a man. And if you were going through some really rough childhood, then it's normal to look for a way out. And by way out, I mean, some guys will go to sports, some dudes will turn to school, but for people like me and you, the military is the way out of a messed up, you know, family, messed up home, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So What prompted you when you joined the military to say, I want the army and I want the infantry instead of going to do something nice and easy.
1: Uh, I mean, I have some, some lineage of, uh, you know, some grandfathers and stuff that, that did some pretty cool things in their military career. All right. Influenced that. And, uh, Man, just, just watching all the old war movies as a kid and just seeing, like, the action, the battle stuff. Like, that's that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I, I can recall when the movie Pearl Harbor first came out and my family had that movie on DVD. And when the, you know, battle at Pearl Harbor happened and all the boats were blowing yeah. up and all these sailors were dying and the planes were being shot down and stuff. Right there... You know that movie was so long that when it was on DVD, you had to switch the DVD. Like there was a second DVD <laughs> right. you had to put in yeah. to watch the whole movie. And I can distinctly recall, like, when my dad switched the the DVDs, it was t- he told me to go take a shower. Like it was time for me to go take a shower. Well, where those DVDs end, where the first one stops and the second one ends, yeah. it's like yeah. right after. The massacre. It's like everything's on fire. All of our boats are sinking. The sailors are trapped in (laughs) the boats. And my dad's like, "Go take a shower." I'm like, "Okay." And I get in the shower, and I'm so mad that I just saw that happen to like our military. That I was crying in the shower at like seven years old, like just so mad that all of our sailors just you know were blown up and stuff. So I just I just had the that that's just always what I wanted to do, man. I don't know.
0: Either that was an intense moment for you, or you've got an insane memory because I can't remember anything about that age when I was a kid. <laughs> but obviously, that scene from Pearl Harbor left a mark on you, man.
1: Oh yeah, man! Like just uh, it definitely left an impression for sure. That's yeah. still to date, to date one of my favorite movies. So. <laughs> But I still get mad every time I watch that part.
0: Yeah, let's fast forward. You join the Army National Guard. You go to become an infantryman. You spend how long in the military? Tell us a little bit about your military service now.
1: Uh, it was just over in like nine, nine years and f- about five months or so. Um, so yeah, I went from, I went from going to basic in and, in and, uh, infantry school. At Fort Benning, Georgia, got assigned to Bravo Company, Second Battalion, 121st Infantry Division, and uh, started uh-huh. out as as just a grunt, just a regular rifleman, and then uh, moved over to a grenadier carrying a M4 with a grenade launcher on it, and
0: yeah. then uh,
1: because of because of my stature, I was kind of a bigger guy at that point. Big and, dude. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so I, I got moved over to the two four nine SAW, became a SAW gunner, and then uh, I had an interest in the machine guns and stuff, man, I, I loved that, I loved being a machine gunner, I, like the old saying, you're, like, you're the angriest person in a ruck march, but the happiest person in a firefight, like that, that is true, like uh-huh. when you get the when you get to let that thing go, it's, it's uh, incredible. And uh, so I had an interest to move over to the, the actual heavy gun teams at the 240 Bravo. Um, So I became uh, the uh, assistant gunner on the machine gun team, carrying the tripod and all the ammo and the spare stuff. And then eventually became the, the main gunner. So I was carrying the 240 Bravo at that point and uh, became a machine gunner. Um, did that for a couple years and then, um, I always had an interest in being a sniper. So I wanted to be a sniper and we had a sniper unit and, um, they were having tryouts or selections coming up All right. and, uh, the way it worked was the snipers and our, and our reconnaissance guys were like in the same platoon. And when you tried out for snipers, you're, you're, you're being selected for either position either you could be right. a sniper and yeah. you go that route or you get selected to be a reconnaissance guy so I went through the selection process at Fort Stewart Georgia and uh, and I, I was accepted and uh, my path was to go down to the reconnaissance side so I'd spent the last couple years of my career doing reconnaissance work
0: okay. For the listener who doesn't understand the difference between the National Guard and the active duty, can you just describe a little bit about the workload of a National Guardsman?
1: Yeah, I mean, when you're in the National Guard, you're, you know, you, you still have the same expectations. The 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 grooming standards are the same. Uniforms are the same uniforms, um, but the PT standards are the same so you have to pass your physical you know test that you take periodically um, but you get to have a full-time civilian job and do yeah you know your National Guard duties. supposed to be like one week in a month um, and then you know two weeks in the summer but when you're in the infantry side of the Georgia National Guard it usually your two weeks in the summer turns into three and a half four weeks you know so yeah. Um, all the standards are the same. Um, it is, it's, it has its unique challenges because you're not on active duty. So you're not waking up at five o'clock doing PT every morning. Yeah. You're, you're, you're accountable for yourself. So when you're at home and you're a civilian, you know, and if you're not putting in the work it takes to to pass those standards, then you're just not going to pass. And unfortunately, I think the national guard does have a bad rap of, you know, not being up to par but it takes it takes your your own self-discipline nobody's going to wake you up at five o'clock every morning and tell you to run. like you you got to do that on your own so there's um there's a lot of good good soldiers in the national guard and you know it's it's a it's it's a unique challenge in itself the national guard um they still forward deploy to you know Uh battles and they support a lot of things and then there's um the national disaster side of the house, too. So, if, um, yeah, right, you know, I, I've been a part of some hurricane efforts that have hit like Savannah and the coastal side of Georgia, and we've gone down there and we're activated to help just, I mean, do anything, clear trees out of the roadways and pass right. out. People didn't have fresh running water, so we were able to provide that to them or help provide that to them. So, um you get to do you you have the opportunity to do a lot of good in the national guard as well
0: yeah agree yeah i served with national guardsmen right around me even in some of the most intense special operations units in the world there were some national guardsmen that were kind of with us and helped support us and i have the greatest respect for them because as you just described you've got a full-time job for the most part monday through yeah. friday but then one week into the month, you're now uh, um, you're in the military and you're serving in as in, you know, as a soldier. Then you go back to your civilian job until there's a crisis. Crisis could yeah. be in your state where you show up and help out in a natural disaster can be a international crisis. And they activate you and send you overseas as part of the U.S. military. And. The reason I have the greatest respect for the guard is because you have to do both and you have to do both really, really well. And that's not easy to do. The right. National and Guard can get a bad name with some people, but right. not with me, man. Yeah. I've got the greatest respect well, for what we would call weekend warriors that are really, really good warriors during the weekend and then really good at what they do during the week. It's not an easy life.
1: And it's it was pretty cool that, you know, the the guard brings so many so many people from so many different backgrounds together, Yeah, you know, the army, the, you know, active duty does too, but you have like entrepreneurs in the national guard. So, right. You know, you have all kinds of walks of life that come into the national guard for all different types of reasons. So like, I know people that own, tree company. So if I need a tree service, like I have a guy to call, you know, like I know people to call. I I know people that are plumbers or own plumber businesses and like all, just all kinds of stuff, man. It's just, it's incredible how, how much, you know, and then, and then when you're in a situation like, you know, you go down to help out some of this national disaster stuff and you have people who own tree companies. So not only can they provide services as a national garment, but they own tree companies So they're right. Hey, hey, we're going to know a thing or two about
0: this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's it's just cool how it brings all that kind of stuff together collectively.
0: Well, obviously, you're a guy who likes guns. um, And this is not just obvious from your time in the National Guard, but it's also pretty obvious from what you did in law enforcement. So now let's talk this side of your life. When did the law enforcement piece start for you? Because you were in the National Guard from... Basically graduating high school for for the next ten years. When did you start going down the road of uh, becoming a police officer?
1: Uh, yeah, so 2014, I got hired on with Clayton County, and uh, started that journey. I was 20 years old. Um, I turned 21 right before the academy wow. started. The police police impressive. Academy. And um, yeah. started doing that, um, and I've, I've, I'm coming up on my nine year mark with the county, so almost a decade, another decade. All right. And um, uh, graduated the police academy that that November of 2014, and went out to, uh, you know, being a cop um, into my field
0: training phase where. I'm writing this down. So you finished the Police Academy in November 2014. And just kind of briefly describe what happens with your law enforcement career for the next couple of years.
1: Uh, so I, I worked um, patrol answering 911 calls um, for a couple years. And I moved over to our gang unit, uh, so our gang investigative unit. And crime suppression unit, so we were, you yeah. know, tasked with being proactive and and proactively seeking out to find, you know, criminal activity before yeah, either the crime right. happens or you know after it happens and things like that. And so you go from from a answering, you know, people in need of help calls to right. um, tr- trying to find people who are victimizing society. Um, so I got a lot of fulfillment out of that um yeah in 2021 uh yeah 2021 i tried out for our SWAT team and uh successfully went through that selection process tryout phase uh was selected to go into the SWAT team and started training um I had a lot of. I've been through a lot of training. I've, I've met a lot of people. Been a, a <laughs> sounds you know,
0: like it, man.
1: Been a training all over the country with SWAT. I mean that that opened up so many doors for me. Uh, I got into uh, explosive breaching. So now I have my basic and advanced level explosive breaching. All right. Um. Uh, so now we have a couple people on the team that are explosive breachers. Um. Yeah. So that's u- usually breaching. Is is usually uh my my main goal when we hit a search warrant or something like that is uh yeah. I like being the breacher and, and usually I'm selected to be the breacher a lot of the time. So I get to carry that
0: big ram and smack a door right. with it. So <laughs> that's, that's right. That's Smashing indoors. Yeah, that's <clears throat> always fun. I there's plenty of uh, viewers that are familiar with the letters SWAT. They may not recognize that it stands for Special Weapons and Tactics, but they don't know the difference between a beat cop and a SWAT uh, team. So can you describe how much life is different on a SWAT team than the average police officer that's responding to a 911 call or even doing crime suppression?
1: Yeah, I mean... uh, being on SWAT, we're we're on call twenty four seven. So even when we're we're not at work, um, we're tied to a phone, our work phone. So mm-hmm. whenever there's, we have a saying that when the police need help, they call the SWAT team. So, um, right, you know when when I'm at home enjoying time with my family and uh, my kids and stuff, and uh, that phone goes off, and you know it's time to go to work, and you got to go from. You got to go from being a dad to going into yeah, you an environment. Yeah, got to flip a where, switch. Yeah, we're usually not always, but usually when when we're called out like that, um, usually there's there's gunshots that have either already right. been fired by a suspect or when we show up, they're going to be fired at at us by mm-hmm. you know a suspect. Um, so you're like i said you're on call 24 7 365 days a year i mean you do get to have vacations and stuff but you know you you gotta kind of give the team a heads up like hey i'm gonna be out of pocket for yeah. the weekend or whatever um so it's not like you're just stuck and you can't do anything you can enjoy life but you you know you're on call 24 7 and we trained um once a week together so we get yeah. a lot of training in um we get a lot of shooting in so we are very proficient at shooting and marksmanship and and uh just overall tactics we get to train together a lot yeah um so it, it's very it can be very stressful i mean you're going into some very stressful environments um some a lot of unknowns you know you're going into someone else's house you don't know what's in that house and there could be baby yeah. traps and you know j- those things to think about like in america uh, people booby trapping their houses and stuff. You're like, man, that there uh-huh. was no way that would happen there. But we've literally had search warrants where we've found grenades in 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 houses, like live, you know, hand grenades and stuff. And so um, we've we've taken fire a lot since I've been on the team. We've been shot at probably I don't know if I had to guess, maybe six or seven times. I've been shot at since I've been just on uh-huh. the SWAT team. You know in the, you know, almost two years now. So it's just very, It's it could be a very stressful life, you know, in those environments.
0: Well, so I wanted, that's what I wanted the listener to hear. I have the absolute greatest respect for all law enforcement officers because freedom doesn't work if there's not men and women who are willing to defend our rights and to protect us against bad people. Those men and women are the law enforcement officers that serve every day without even being noticed until you need them, until you have a crisis and you pick up the phone and you dial 911. But when SWAT gets called, it's usually not good. It's usually really, really bad. And even the law enforcement officers know, man, if we have to get SWAT involved, it's really ugly. Yeah. So, but it, I love it, it, for you to describe for a second what this is like for your family, man, because every day you go to work, it's hard on them not knowing whether or not my husband or my dad's coming home.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had some close calls at work, um, where Obviously. I've been in some, situ- yeah, I've been in some situations where, um, number of situations where I'm like, this, this might be the one, you know, this might be the one that. That uh that gets me and, that
0: I don't um, walk away from right,
1: yeah, and so we've had some things hit very close to home um that has that's just shaken up our household and and so yeah every day that I walk out the door you know and uh, get to come home it's it's a blessing it's a blessing to me and my and my family and uh, definitely appreciate being able to come home and wake up every morning and come back home to the kids and the wife and everything. Yeah. So
0: just describe your family for just a second to everybody.
1: Um So I have uh, my, my son, he's uh, he'll be five in June and uh, all right. My, my, I have a stepdaughter who's eight and then my wife.
0: Okay. All right. And how long have you and your wife been married? Oh, uh, well we've been
1: together we started dating right right before I made SWAT in 2020 so we've been together since 2020
0: all of this was to just build up now that the listeners know He's got a family. He's got people that are looking up to him. He goes in when even other police officers are not going in. That's part of the role of being a SWAT officer. And you've already said you don't know what you're going into. There could be booby traps. There could be a lot of bad guys. There could be a lot of bullets tonight um, on this target when when SWAT gets called out. Let's talk about November 2021. Let's talk about when you got called out to Rex, Georgia, and why don't you just take it over from here alex and describe what happens during this call and how it goes down
1: yeah so november 30th uh, 2020 um 2021 i was i was on the uh, crime suppression team with my one of my best friends um and we were at work that that day we had we were having a pretty good day, man. We we found a stolen car and some some uh, stolen guns in the car and everything, and there were some drugs in the car or whatever. Wow. So we yeah. we had a pretty successful start to our shift. Like that was the first thing that happened is thirty minutes into our shift, we found the stolen car that's got you know stolen guns and drugs and stuff. So it was a pretty successful start to the day, you know, and it yeah. just felt like a felt like a pretty normal day. We we're having a pretty good day, and. Um, So at one point I was uh, on the way to the jail with um, someone that had an outstanding warrant and I was taking them down to the, to the jail and uh, the initial call came over the radio to the patrol officers of um, reports that somebody had been shot and the, the, the uh inmate that was in the back of my car he started asking me like what this signal and what these codes mean and stuff
0: yeah and, right and i right.
1: just kind of felt uncomfortable with with telling people our signals and codes because you, you don't that's just in something right. in our profession you, none you of you their don't business really want, right yeah so you don't really want that to happen um, so, you know, I just like, oh, you know, sh- something bad happens. And then I turned my radio down so that way he wasn't listening and, and I didn't have to further explain what more code uh-huh. and signals and stuff meant and everything. So I was kind of oblivious to the call initially because I was otherwise, you know, otherwise, uh, doing something. And, uh, so I get down to the jail and there's like three, officers um that were on um, patrol officers that were like running uh-huh. out of the sally port and i'm like what i'm pulling up in my patrol car you know and i'm like
0: <laughs> they're running out or running away right
1: yeah i'm like what are, What are they doing so i get out of the car i'm like you know I, I knew who they were um so i'm like hey what's going on they're like hey we gotta go officer needs help you know shots fired whatever and i'm like oh, snap, like this is OK, something serious is happening. But I have this guy in my car and I can't just like like I have to. So our Sally Port is outside. Like I have to get this guy in the jail and secure him because he's he Hey, needs pause to for to just jail. a second.
0: Tell everybody what a Sally Port is, because many people don't recognize that term.
1: Yeah. So the Sally Port is the area of the jail that an officer or a deputy would drive into to bring someone in the jail it's like they right it's a sec, secure part of the jail that you bring people in into the jail and it can work in, in different ways ours is a open area that's like a brick wall yeah. that has you know like razor wire around the top um right some other places is like a a roll-up garage door and you drive your car into and the door uh-huh. closes behind you it's a little more secure or whatever but that it's it's the point before you actually get into the jail you know yeah and um the beginning right. stages of where the processing happens. And um, so ours is set up where, like I said, it's like an outside, there's a overhang, just so you pull underneath uh-huh. the overhang. When it's raining, that's nice to have. You're not getting rain on when you get out of the, the car. And then there's like sliding doors on this brick wall. That, that's And so you go to the door, the door opens automatically because someone's in a control tower. They can uh-huh. see you on the camera there they hit the button, the door opens and then you walk in the jail and then you bring him into like the, the intake holding area, drop your paperwork yeah, off. Yeah. They, they get searched and everything. Um, so I'm like, okay, you know, the, something serious is happening. I got to get this guy inside the jail. Um, so I, I, I had already been to the jail once, so I knew who the intake deputy was. He was a certified uh-huh. deputy that was working overtime in the intake. um, so I'm walking up to the door, the door opens and he comes running out and he's the one working intake. So now I'm like the intake. <laughs> yeah, so now. So
0: Everybody's out. running away, right? Yeah. So
1: everyone's running out of the jail and he's like, he's telling me, Hey, come on, we got to go. And I'm like, I know, but like, what do I do with this guy? You know? And so he's like, just put the paperwork on the table and let him close the door. And I'm like, okay, and he's the guy still in handcuffs. Yeah. He's still in handcuffs, <clears throat> but basically secure him in this door and uh, let somebody else handle it, and then you know, let's go over here. That's you know, <laughs> right. The the gist of it. And uh, so once we got him secured, the guy's still in my handcuffs. So I leave I leave my handcuffs that I bought personally that were my favorite handcuffs. I leave it on him uh-huh. and leave him in the jail. And so I go running out of the jail as well. And um, we there's so there's lock boxes on the wall, and yeah. you put your gun. Your gun and your knives and your taser and and aspaton and everything you put it in the lockbox because you can't take it in the jail. So I had to run back to the lockbox and and get all my equipment out and then get to my patrol car. And the deputy's like, "Hey, I'll follow you." And I'm like, "Okay, well, I'm trying to get my my databases back up, turn my internet back on my computer so I can find uh-huh. out where the." The address is actually at, so I could start driving there. So we get to the gate to be let out of the Sallyport area, and it, mm-hmm. it opens up, and the deputy is ahead of me, and and he just starts driving, you know, and so I'm following him, thinking like maybe he knows where he's going, and uh, it didn't seem like he knew, so I went around him once I was able to get the address and everything, and uh, got... yeah got from from jonesboro to to rex it was you know probably 14 15 miles away the call was so Mm -hmm. um it was a it was a long ride just to get there running you know lights and sirens it was a pretty pretty good little drive so when i when i initially showed up i was well let me back up real quick when i was on the way um, I still really didn't know what was going on other than the fact that, yeah. you know, people told me there were shots fired and, and an officer was in trouble. They need to help. So. OK, I don't need to know very much more. I'm I'm on the way. Right. I'm coming regardless. But. Um, I heard on the radio, there was a lieutenant that was working and, and uh, that lieutenant said, if there if there was if there's any SWAT operators working, we need you to uh-huh. get here now. So basically, you know, that that means if you're not doing something that's important and you have to be there and you're a SWAT operator, we, you know, we need you. So that basically Drop everything relieves and, you. Yeah. Yeah. So that basically relieves you of whatever duty that you're doing at, the, at that point in time. Because, you know, we have SWAT operators that are detectives. They don't handle patrol stuff. So mm-hmm. they, okay, instead of investigating the crime you're investigating right now, hey, you're relieved of that right now we need you to go over here so i already knew that it had escalated to the point where they're like already asking for the swat team yeah which was very quickly you know that happened very quickly and uh so i'm like okay something something bad definitely happened so i get there and uh there was an intersection on a a big state route That was completely shut down. There was just cop cars everywhere. So there's a ton of law enforcement agencies inside of our county. We have a county Uh sheriff's office. We have a county police department. And then there's like six or seven cities that have their own departments as well. So there's, there's a lot of law enforcement agencies in our county. So there's a lot of cops. And um, so there was, you know, patrol cars from every department, pretty much almost in our in our county. And uh, they were just everywhere. And it was kind of chaotic. Um, So the intersection to the neighborhood going into where the call was, was completely shut down. And there, you know, there was people standing around their cars and there were patrol cars out there. So I thought that that point was relatively close to the incident. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I get out of my car and open my trunk and unlock it. And I start taking off my like my normal patrol vest and my normal patrol duty belt and put on my my big heavy plate carrier, uh, my my helmet and uh, my other duty belt that we were on the SWAT team. And uh, so I'm, so I'm, I'm getting ready. I'm preparing myself, hooking my radio up putting it in the pouch, putting my ear pro on my helmet, putting it on and everything. And so I grab my, I grab my rifle and, uh, I take off running down the, the road to the neighborhood. And there was a couple fire trucks actually that was parked on the, the main road. And still uh-huh. I'm following, uh, the trail of blue and red lights, you know, down the road. So I'm like, if I just run this way, it's gotta be over here somewhere. And um, the fire department was like, "Hey, man, uh, the the house is like three quarters of a mile down the street. Like, you might you might wanna, <laughs> that's a
0: long run with all of that gear.
1: Yeah, with all that on. Yeah, they're like, you might want to just get in your car and drive further down. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. So I, I get back in the car. And I I drive down and to another intersection where there was a lot of police presence, and uh, I walk up and. My adrenaline's already starting to go because I know something something I bad bet. happened. And uh, we're about to walk into this environment. And I I remember I'm walking up with my rifle and, and I'm in my equipment and everything. And there was a police officer. And I vaguely, like, I remember seeing them, but I don't remember who, who it was. And I don't remember seeing, yeah. you know, a name tag or anything. But the first question out of my mouth was, hey, where is Laxon at? Which was my best friend. And, uh, he and I were yeah. on a SWAT team together and, um, someone pointed to like a pickup truck in a driveway. Um, and it was like, Hey, they're over there. So he was already staged up with some of the other guys that were on duty and were SWAT operators. So I mm-hmm. ran over to them and kind of got a gist of what happened. Um, so basically what happened is, uh, there was some kind of th- domestic incident And uh, a guy had shot his son, who was 13, I believe, at the time. Shot him in the face. He executed his sister in the front yard of the neighbor's house. And then later we learned that there was actually a a deceased older female inside the home. Um, So two people had been shot. We knew one was dead um which was his sister they were able to get the uh his son he was walking down the street and holding his face basically until he encountered a cop going to the call Uh for service and kind of flagged him down and um you know was able to tell them what happened and uh give a, a brief description of what his father was wearing and everything and um so the patrol officers get to the point where they can actually see his sister in the front yard of that house, and they they run over to try to provide aid to her, assess her. Hey, you know she's still alive, and then try to to treat her and 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 get some attention on her gunshot wounds and everything. And while they were doing that, um, the the houses were really close together, and the the suspect yeah. came out of the. The house that he lived at and started shooting in the direction of the patrol officers who are now uh-huh. providing you know aid to his sister that he had executed and so that was um the initial prompt to get officers to their location that's when they needed help yeah. was that yeah. the guy came out and was you know shooting at them which made them have to change positions find some cover because she's in the front yard of the house and they're really exposed yeah, and they, yeah. they're they being met with gunfire while their attention was already diverted to something else. So they really didn't, I don't think they really had a true understanding of where he was and what the threat yeah. was at that time. So they had to basically regroup and uh, find cover and then, you know, start assessing from there. Cause they're they're If uh, you know, if you want to think about the OODA loop part of it, uh, you know, scientifically they're, their attentions diverted something else. And then they're being met with a life or death situation. And, you know, they got to regroup. So that's when they put the, the stress call out on the radio and started getting some resources to them. And, uh, so at that point, um, when I showed up, there was, there wasn't a whole lot of information yet. Um, so they, you know, obviously it didn't even get to the point where they were investigating what happened. They, they, they were trying to render aid to someone who was dying and was met with gunfire. So there wasn't a whole lot of information to be had, you know, not to, so not to discredit the actions of the patrol officers that were there that night. But there was just not enough information to be obtained anyway. You know, you have a yeah. a 13 year old kid who can only intelligently articulate so much to, to the, the patrol officers. And, and, and maybe he didn't even know a full understanding of why this happened to him either. And he needed medical attention. So he was taken out of the area anyway, you know, so it's not like they could sit there and interview him and get all the facts like he needed to go be treated for a a gunshot wound to the face of pretty serious, and uh so there was just wasn't a whole lot of information and and the patrol the patrol officers thought that he had ran into the woods and the last time that he exchanged fire with them they thought he was in the woods so that was our initial information was uh when I showed up was hey we think he's in the woods and um he he's been shooting at us he's and that's when I learned like from the initial call where that guy was asking me, what does this code means? The, yeah. the person who lived at the house where his sister was executed, called the police and said, yo, somebody's dead in my you know front yard. This person just got shot in my front yard. Yeah. So, so that's how this whole thing started happening. And um, so we were trying to game plan what we were going to do and actually trying to figure out where the incident location was in relation to where we were because we were not on the street of yeah. the call. We were inside of the perimeter that the patrol officers had established to basically surround yeah. the area of where this suspect was and limit his ability to escape this, this area kind of contain him. Um, so there was, you know, I can't remember who it was from the team, but they took their, their, uh, visible laser for their rifle and started, circling a yeah. house like hey I, th- I think it's this house right here and so you know one of our team members is like all right well let's let's go behind some of these houses use them as like concealment and we'll we'll move up till we can get a better uh, vantage point on that house because we're probably 200 yards away from the house that someone thought the uh-huh. incident location was anyway so we do we we go behind some houses use them as cover and come up to the back corner of a house that was pretty much perpendicular to um, the house they thought it was. And so when we got there, there was a guy, a civilian hiding behind uh, a trash can. Like you roll out to the driveway and the trash truck comes picks up yeah, garbage can right. up, you know? And so he's hiding behind the trash can outside of the perimeter looking at the perimeter officers and uh-huh. he's fumbling, you know, we're still pretty far away from them, probably 60, 70 yards and it's dark. It's like nine, nine o'clock at night, eight 30, nine o'clock at night. So it's, yeah. it's r- relatively dark. We can't really tell what he's fumbling with on the ground. And, um, but he was on one knee and he matched the description of the description we were given by patrol of what the suspect was wearing and everything. So we were like, Hey, is this, is this the guy? Like, is this who we're looking for? Uh-huh. But, but we, we don't know. But our, our dispatcher um, told us that she had someone who called in to 911 and knew where the suspect was. And that right before we got to the back of the house, that's she updated us and said that there was a caller that knows where the suspect is so we're trying to get information from dispatch we're relaying like hey can you confirm with the caller is this guy we're looking at behind is he currently behind behind a trash can so we're we're trying to get that confirmation yes or no and he matched the description um and he was he was just uh acting very kinky anyway and so he he had a he had all of our attention because He matched the description, his his mannerisms and behavior and the fact that he was hiding behind this trash can like he was not trying to be seen. And he's outside of our perimeter. It definitely was like this. This may be our guy. So we could never we could never get that confirmation. Yes or no. This is the suspect or not. Um, So at one point. Uh, we had a couple patrolmen that were with us that we felt were competent enough to kind of run with us in the, until we get the rest of the team and our armored vehicle and some of our other equipment with us. You know, we kind of have to substitute that with some patrolmen, And uh, we had a little bit too big of a team right there on the corner of the house, and, and everybody wanted to look around the corner, you know, to see what was going on. Um, so at one point, he saw... He saw us, you know, behind that house and we could we recognize that yeah. like he he our our position was now n- not of an advantage anymore. So we we decided yeah, not to, good. Right. Yeah. Now he knows what, where we are and we don't know if he's got a gun. So now we decided to to actually deal with him as a possible threat because of all of the, the you know, the details I explained, like of his mannerisms sure. and his just. Yeah. Disc- physical description and everything and and so we moved up together like online and 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 started giving him commands to get on the ground which he started complying with and uh he started you know laying down on the ground and now we're have we have this element of like a mixture between like SWAT operators and patrol officers and we're having him crawl to us on his stomach and he's complying at this point so we're like what 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 he's you know, the guy we we're looking for is shooting at the police. He's shot a couple people, but he's just, yeah. you know, okay, well, maybe this this show of, you know, force was is working. Well, as we're literally dealing with him and he's crawling towards us, dispatch gets on the radio and says that the caller who knows where the suspect is just called again and said that the suspect is walking out of the house now. He's wearing all red and he's walking down the street with a gun. So we're like, okay, the physical description had changed because at first he was (laughs) wearing all black, now they're saying all red. The guy we're dealing with is wearing all red, I mean all all black, and we have been observing him for the past five minutes or so. He didn't just come out of the house, and he doesn't have a gun. So maybe this is not our guy. So our team leader at, the, at that point in time said, hey, give me two guys. We're going to push up to the next cross street and see if we can interdict this person that they're saying is walking down the street. Mm-hmm. Um, so me and my best friend volunteered to to be the, the two guys that go with him. So we broke off from that from that element and um, we, we took off in a dead sprint um, kind of at an angle from where we were which led into the backyard of the houses that was, uh, you know, basically the next street up. And um, at the first house on the corner, we ran around it. And so now we're in between these two houses. And when we we came around the corner, I could see the guy walking down the street. And he was walking, like, from uh-huh. my right, right to left, walking down the sidewalk. And he was wearing all red and uh I immediately started calling out, like, hey, there he is, there he is. So we we moved up in between these two houses, which were probably, I don't know, 25 feet apart from each other. Like they were like just right on top yeah. of each other. And uh, so I ended up being on the far left. Um, my team leader was in the middle. Uh my buddy Officer Laxon was on the far right side, and then there was a guy who's assigned to our marshal's task force um who works for us as a sign with the Marshals was behind uh Laxon. Uh-huh. So we pushed up together and um it got to a point where like the wall of the house that's that's to my left um took out my view of him because he's walking, you know, he's walking down the street to the left and now I have this wall that's, you know, further in front of me and goes around. He walked past the corner so I couldn't see him anymore. But I saw, like in my peripheral, I saw um, Officer Laxon drop down to a knee and then our our Marshal's TFO guy come over the top of him and I heard um, Laxon start giving him commands, you know, let me see your hands, let me see your hands. I remember hearing that and then just a, a volley of gunfire. But I can't see him now. Like I don't know where he is exactly. Right. So I hear the volley of gunfire and my team leader and Laxon start shooting and then Denard, our task force officer. So I hear all this gunfire and and I'm still moving up to the corner of the house and I see Laxon like I heard him say I'm hit. And then in my peripheral vision, I could see him like rolling over to his his side, like rolling out of the way. Uh So,
0: yeah,
1: I I get up to the corner of the house and I start pieing around the corner and now uh the i i find the the suspect he had basically ran from in front of the house and now he's he's ran to the opposite corner at on the front of the house he's hiding behind a tree and um, the the porch light on the house was on and in between the houses was very dark and so for him to look over to where we were he he was basically looking in that bright porch light and i had no light behind me so i wasn't backlit at all so he couldn't yeah. see me at all and i and i knew that so i used it to my advantage um to to get uh an accurate you know put my sights on him and then i turned my flashlight on my rifle and started giving him commands while i'm already dialed into him and so if he yeah. did anything you know aggressively towards me i'm already in a position of advantage and, uh, as soon as I started giving him commands to get on the ground and let me see your hands, um, he stepped from almost like stepped around the tree and started raising his hand up and Yeah. had, had a pistol in his hand. So we, we exchanged gunfire, um, at each other and he took off running. And, uh, so I'm thinking like, did I, did I miss completely? Like I, I took the time to get dialed in on uh-huh. this guy and, And have the upper hand and everything and he just took off running like nothing happened um and for whatever reason like i can't i can't explain it to this day and i I wish there was something that i knew that i could tell other people so they could maybe recognize in the situation and and know but something just clicked in my head when he took off running it wasn't anything he did specifically but i knew that what he was going to do was run around the house and try to come up behind uh-huh. us and 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 basically flank us and uh so i recognized that as soon as he took off running before he made it to the corner of the house i started calling out hey he's trying to flank us well i had no idea at the time that once the gunfire had had ceased initially between like the three officers and the suspect at that point yeah the two other officers grabbed Laxon and then started dragging him to the back of the house, and I'm still working up to the corner trying to get in the fight. And um, so I had no idea that they're actually, you know, dragging him back. So when I called out he's yeah. trying to flank us, they're already behind the house and they're providing aid to him, trying to, you know, basically save uh-huh. him. I had no idea. Cause I'm looking, I'm doing I'm focused on doing my job, you know? Right. And um, so when I called out, he's trying to flank us. I pulled off of that corner, ran behind me, got to the next corner, and I was basically trying to cut him off um, before he was able to come up behind us. And uh, as I'm pieing that corner, um, he he came around the corner just in a dead sprint. And as soon as he rounded the corner, he just threw up and like in a dead sprint, just threw the gun up, shot one time, and it hit me in the hand. Um, and it, it made me like it. Scared the crap out of me, so I it made me drop the rifle basically, yeah. and I, well, I had it slung, but I, I dropped it, um, cause I'm like, what was that, you know? And uh, just got I'm shot down, in the hand, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm down on one knee, and now I don't have my rifle in my hand, so I'm like, okay, I I gotta I gotta do something, to preserve my own life. So I started crawling backwards, and regrouping and pick my rifle back up. And as I'm picking my rifle back up, I could hear gunfire from basically my left and kind of behind me. So I stood in place and just, you know, held my rifle at the corner. If he comes around the corner at me, I'll be able to re-engage him. But because people are shooting from kind of behind me and to my left, I didn't want to move too far forward and uh, put put myself in, in crossfire. So I just held where I was. And just waited to see if he was coming around the corner or not. Because he was running in a dead sprint. Like he was determined to get to where we were. Um, so yeah. I, I was, I fully expected him to come running around the corner at me. and uh, But he didn't. And so uh, I started crawling to my left to stay behind the gunfire from my other officers. But get a, mm-hmm. a different vantage point to see where he's at, what's going on. And so by that time, I'm starting to crawl out to my left. Um, I see basically his feet on laying on the ground, sticking up in the air, and his legs, you know, yeah. across the ground. So I'm like, okay, he's down. Um, and I keep pying a little bit more and see, like, he's not moving. And the gunfire stops. So I'm like, all right, He's down officers started coming from like the perimeter and coming They, you know, every, everyone wanted to come help because a gunfight was going on. And we had uh, put down, put out the downed officer call on the radio. So everybody wants to come in and help. And as I started seeing officers move up to take the suspect in custody, um, people started coming closer to where I was and I'm like, Hey, I'm hit. So, um, some people came over to to me and they got a tourniquet on my arm and uh they took this suspect in custody and um i was kind of i'm gonna say uh out of it a little bit but like i started calling out for lax i'm like where's Laxon at?" and i uh, i could see him on the ground like i'm looking at him but i just kept saying yeah. where's Laxon at?" so they kind of they you know so this guy grabbed me and kind of was like hey man he's fine they're working on him. He's going to be okay. Like, let's get you, let's get you to the ambulance. And like, as bad as I wanted to stay there, you know, with him, there was, I knew there was, there's nothing that I know that the other two SWAT operators that are there don't know that they can't do. So there's nothing that I can do for him that they're not already doing. And yeah, my hands shot up too. So I needed, I need to go get seen about as well. So, um, I started walking out of the area. They put me in the back of a, a, a patrol car that was close by. I took my vest off and everything and and uh got in the back of the car and they, they drove me to where the ambulances were staged up. And um I didn't know I didn't know this at the time, but the ambulance they put me in, they had already pulled the gurney out of it, the stretcher. They already pulled the, the stretcher out of the ambulance and it was it was on the sidewalk. And I remember now, like looking back, I can, I remember passing the gurney, but I, so I get in this yeah. ambulance and it's, that's, it's kind of important in a minute, but I pat, so I, I see the gurney and it doesn't hit me that I'm getting into this ambulance that doesn't have a gurney. So now I'm sitting on the bench seat inside the ambulance and they're looking at yeah. my hand and everything. So as they're, they're starting to assess me and the ambulance doors open up from the back you know there's a side door in an ambulance and then there's the back double doors i uh, went in the side door the back uh the double doors were closed well all of a sudden the double doors open and the gurney starts being wheeled in well my best friend is on the gurney and yeah. they're putting the officer the, the gurney, laxton laxton right yeah, yeah so they're putting the gurney in the ambulance well now they've already cut his shirt off and he's not moving and i'm sitting there trying to be assessed but My best friend now, now is the first time that I've seen him with clear eyes and in actual ambient light. And, uh, he, he had, you know, he had throw down his neck and his chest Mm -hmm. and, uh, it was, it was odd because there wasn't a whole lot of blood. Like he wasn't bleeding heavily. It was all a bunch of internal stuff, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and, and so he wasn't moving, and I knew it, it wasn't good. It couldn't be good because he's not moving and he had vomited on himself and stuff. I'm like, that's, that's not good. And, um, so the, the ambulance crew was like, Hey, we need to get you out of this ambulance. We got to put you in, in the other one. And, um, I'm yeah. like, okay. So I get up and get into the next ambulance and they, they're put me on the actual gurney of that ambulance. And, um, to start cutting my shirt off and assessing me and everything, and and I could hear on on their radio, um, one of the medics on the other ambulance that was you know, working on locks and they they said we're, I heard them say we're working a code on one officer, and yeah. that that means the, a code is basically cardiac arrest, and um, I'm yeah, like, his no, heart stopped beating. Yeah, no, you're not. No you're not. You can't be. There's no way. Not not him. Not Laxon. There's I just kept saying that right. over and over like no you're not. No you're not. You're not. You can't be. No you're not. And so we get taken to two separate hospitals. Um they they took him to the closest local hospital to try to stabilize him mm-hmm. before they could move him to level 1 trauma care and then they took me straight to a trauma hospital because I was stable and everything. So um, I spent many hours in the hospital, getting x-rays and um, stitches in my hand. And um, you know, there's a bunch of people came up um, from other agencies, just showing their support to us. And that's kind of like, yeah, the thing, you know, if you, you see that on the news all the time, if there's an officer, a down officer that goes to the hospital, you know, you see on the news, there's just a sea of patrol cars with their lights on just, just right. you know, showing support for that officer and stuff. So there was there was a lot of officers from my department that was at the hospital and, and surrounding agencies and stuff, and, and people going back and forth from checking on me to driving an hour south to check on yeah. Jackson and everything. And, right. Um, so there was a, a sergeant, can
0: you just, uh, I was going to say, when did you learn that officer Laxon passed
1: right now? That's what I was getting into. Uh, so there was, there was a sergeant that was in my, um, my trauma room and he was actually the sergeant who I got in the back of his car when they drove me to the ambulance and he escorted Uh my ambulance to the hospital. So he was, he was in the, um in my trauma room and minutes after me just being in the trauma room, it's just me and him. And I'm like, is Laxing gone? And he said yeah. And I just broke down and, you know, just I hysterically. Lost yeah. Oh yeah. I was I lost it. was uh, just hysterically crying and um you know with my parents living out of state um that you know it's it's hard to get in touch with them sometimes anyway because there's yeah. a time difference between here and there and uh-huh. uh and I I have a history of breaking cell phones on duty so this particular <laughs> night uh I took my cell phones out of my pocket and put them on the dash of my patrol car because I've yeah. broken broken or lost so many phones that Um, I probably keep my cell provider in service, you know, just buying new phones. And, uh, (laughs) so, so, uh, I didn't have my cell phones. They were in my patrol car. Um, I, I had no way to call my parents and stuff. And there, there wasn't, there's not too many people at work. There's a couple people that know my parents and have their numbers and, you know, know how to communicate with them, but they weren't there. Um, so I didn't really know how I was going to communicate with people. So I just, I told another one of my best friends from the team, Hey, call my wife, like call, call her, or let her know what's going on. Yeah. Make sure she, make yeah. sure she knows, you know, what's going on. Um, <clears throat> because this was pretty early in our relationship. I mean, her and I had only been dating for like, yeah, I want to say like eight months or so, you know? And, um, so, I didn't I didn't really have a whole lot of um conscious thought that I had like I didn't have the room for a whole lot of thought it's just like hey call her let right. her know what happened but I'm like suffocating in the in the grief of now I know my friend's dead and I don't yeah. I don't know what's going on with my hand and I know another police officer who was shot in the hand and and basically couldn't as I understand it, couldn't go back Couldn't return to, to duty. Right.
0: So now yeah.
1: all these things are in my head. I'm like, am I going to be able to, to be a cop anymore? Cause I get a lot of fulfillment out of doing my job, you know, and, yeah, and sure. it means a lot to me to do this job. And, and, uh, there's just so many thoughts and emotions going through my head. And so <clears throat> they were able to get in contact with, with my wife. And then, uh, somebody was able to get in touch with my parents <clears throat> and my dad actually called the hospital and I was able to talk uh-huh. to my dad on the charge nurses like desk phone you know it, it's yeah. like a old yeah. the old school phone that it's it's cordless but it sits on the cradle or whatever like that's right that's still what they yeah. use at the hospital so so this phone gets brought to me and they're like here So I, I'm like, hello. And it's my dad. He's like, Hey, are you okay? And you know, so I I was, I was able to talk to him briefly before it was like time to do x-rays and all this other stuff. So that, that's how I was able to, to actually talk to my parents was on the, the charge nurse's desk phone. And, um, and yeah, the, the rest is pretty much history. Uh, obviously he, he succumbed to his injuries, um, in the hospital didn't make it uh my wife and stepdaughter was able made made it up to the hospital and was able to see them and stuff
0: yeah alex you described your valor you described your best friend's valor that night on the uh in that response responding to that call but i also know this isn't the first friend that you've lost in the line of duty And that you lost Officer Wallace back in 2015. And so for you, man, this is not the first. um, And it hurts every time. But when it's the second time and it's somebody that's that close to you, it's really hard to get over it. Yeah. Um, I want to point out to the listeners that you received the Medal of Valor for this, which is the highest uh, award that the local police department can give to an officer for in your line of work for what you did. And I think based on what you've described, not only do you deserve it, but man, I, I just want to tell you personally, thank you for the commitment that you've made to serving and protecting people. Because if it wasn't for you, there'd be a whole lot more situations like this. Yeah, And I, I'd like to, lot. you, I'd, I'd like to ask you to just kind of wrap this episode up by letting the listeners know the, co- the quality of guys and gals that are out there serving their community like you and like Officer Wallace, like Officer Laxon, who not just are willing to put their lives on the line, but every day are trying to make society a better place. And the news doesn't tell you the good stories. They only tell you the bad stories right now. So can you kind of wrap this thing up by letting the listener know the kind of people that are out there serving and making this their their communities all over the all over the nation and perhaps around the world making their communities a better place um i feel like that's the best way to wrap up the story that you just described
1: yeah i mean uh i i serve Um, I take my job seriously. Um, I take a lot of pride in in what I do and I I always treat people. I'm
0: going to pause you for just a second, Alex. I need to uh, interrupt because I think there are some people that are saying, wait a second. Did Alex go back to the force? Did Alex continue to serve? And because you just used a present tense verb, I know the answer to this. But there are some people that are asking the question, Alex, are you still serving? Can you go ahead and answer that question as you describe this for them?
1: Yeah, so I I am still currently serving. Uh, you know I was I was put on administrative leave um, for the shooting, and, and you know, like I said, there's a whole investigation that has to happen because I was involved in the shooting. Um, someone lost their life that night, and uh, so there's a an investigation that has to happen. Even though it was, you know, it's kind of annoying because. We were just trying to preserve life that night, and and my best friend was in, ended up dying, and all these people, all these people ended up dying that night. You know, three people died, and and two people were shot uh, that are still living, like me and, and and his son, and we actually have the same first name, which is weird. Our names are just spelled differently, you know, and um, and, our, and our names are unique. Like it's not a it's not a common like. Alex, yes, but I go by my middle name, and his, so his first name is my middle name, and it's it's kind of a unique name, so it's, it's just kind of peculiar that it's, it's just spelled differently, but we have the same name, and uh, so long, anyway, I was put on admin leave, I did a little bit of recovery and then rehab stuff, and uh, so I was out for about three months, and I was going absolutely stir-crazy in my house. Um, Yeah. uh, So and I think the best way I've been able to describe it, like how I was feeling it in that moment or in that space of time was I just felt like a a 20 ounce Coke bottle that somebody had just shaken up and then sat down on the table and just walked away from it. You know, so now like all these emotions, everything's just. Oh, yeah. Um, It's just a lot of it was a lot of pressure you know, inside, this guy had all these, I was mad, I was angry, um, that this happened to my best friend and everything, you know, but, but yeah, I did, um, did rehab and some physical therapy stuff and, uh, was out for about three months. Um, and when they, they were able to, well, actually, because I was still working out at the time, like I just, it sounds stupid and cliche to say, but, uh I took one day off from the gym after everything happened and then the day after that I was in the gym working out again and uh, I just told myself like you have to you have to prepare for the next one you know you have to keep training for the next time that this is like going to happen because the realization was for me being in the metro atlanta area on a SWAT team in the metro atlanta area this situation was likely to yeah again and again and it's not if you know it's when and um so it was kind of it's it's kind of barbaric to think back on and say like that was my mentality like oh i'm training for the next battle but i will say something that helped me out was was actually having that mentality and then when i started yeah. actual therapy um that was my mentality was, yeah. you know, my, ther- my sure. therapist was asking me, what do you want, you know, to get out of this? And I'm well, or what what are you more con- what's the most thing that you're most concerned with? And it was like yeah. the next time this happens, I want to be right. able to perform again and be in a good mindset and you know it's just funny how that was that was my mentality to get better and then a week after i went back to work almost to the day we got shot at again on the wow. spot so yeah
0: alex i think the best way to wrap this whole episode up is for just allowing you to describe for the listener the quality of the guy or the gal that's out there <laughs> serving and protecting them because the news doesn't always tell the good stories. In fact, the news is really uh, focused on the bad stories, but they don't tell you the many, many good stories. So can we just wrap this thing up by you letting the listener know the kind of people that are out there serving and protecting in law enforcement to make sure that they're able to sleep safe tonight?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, I, I had uh... a... I hate that the the media portrays us as being like bullies. Like we just go out and and, and just bully society in it. Right. That's that's not accurate at all. Um, not at all. I yeah, agree. Totally. You, you you have to acknowledge that there's some bad apples or there is bad apples in, in our yeah. profession and shouldn't be there. Um, but... I, I take a lot of pride in my job and I always treat people with respect. And I always think like if uh, the person I'm encountering, if it was my family and an officer had to encounter them, how would yeah. I want that an officer to present himself, treat my family and everything? Um, so no matter, you you know, if they're, if I encounter someone that was older than me or younger than me, it didn't matter male or female is yes ma'am yeah. no ma'am yes sir no sir is very polite I was very professional and polite and courteous to everyone and I'm not an anomaly you know I'm not the only one that does this job like that they I serve with officers who have the same mentality I do and actually that that mentality of treat people how you would want your family treated yeah. is actually like right. it's it's actually a core value of my department that is actually written in writing that that is the that's how our chief wants us to portray ourselves to right. to civilian population so there's departments that have this mentality there's officers that have this mentality i mean i've gotten the, ch- the chance to work with some of the most incredible human beings yeah. i've ever met in my life and people the people i work with genuinely care about the good of society and taking care of people and and, and protecting, uh, protecting the quality of life, preservation of life.
0: Yeah. Well, Alex, I get the honor of interviewing some incredible human beings and I include in that list now you, because you described multiple times during this interview when other guys were running to the gunfire, when you're running to the gunfire, which is definitely not normal. In human right. society, and I just want to tell you, man, I thank God for you and the guys and gals that you serve with to know that there are people like you when uh, something bad happens, and I call nine one one to know that there's somebody like you that's going to treat treat people with respect, but it's also going to run to the sound of the guns instead of running away from it. And yeah. thank you, man, for um, thank you for what you've done for. The country while serving in the National Guard. Thank you for what you do, what you continue to do for your community serving as a law enforcement officer.
1: Yes, sir. Thank you. I mean, that means a lot.
0: You know, yeah. from you it's been great to have you on this episode, man. And I can't yes, wait um, for people to get a chance to hear this incredible story. Yes, sir. Thank you. Can you tell now why I am such a big fan? of law enforcement as well as the military imagine the courage that it took for alex to run to the gunfight to crawl closer to the gunfight to even while he is being shot in the hand to continue to respond and protect people around him wow what an incredible story and i just want to thank alex once again not only for being my guest but for continuing to serve after all that he's been through, continuing to serve and protect his community. There's some pretty amazing people that are on this podcast, but there's also a lot of really amazing people that listen to this podcast. And I want to take a moment and highlight one of the guests. The fan of the week for this episode of Unbeatable is Mike Benjamin. Mike, I just want to tell you, you're amazing. And thank you for being such a faithful, loyal fan to this episode. Hey, guys, if you started listening to this broadcast for the first time and you're not already following us on your favorite podcast platform, why don't you go ahead and subscribe? We're on all of the major podcast platforms. You can actually watch the video if you want on YouTube as well. But I also just want you to know that I have prepared a little video it's actually a real motivational video and it's there to help you get through some of the worst nights, some of the most dangerous or difficult circumstances of your life. And if you want that motivational video, I'll give it to you totally free. All you need to do to be able to watch it is simply become part of the Unbeatable Army. That's our, our list of people that stay connected and I, I communicate with throughout the week. You want to be part of this Unbeatable Army? just go to unbeatablearmy.com. Thanks for joining me for this incredible story from Alex Chandler on Unbeatable. See you next time.